Good morning. We have two readings this morning, the first from Daniel chapter 7, and then we'll be going over to Luke chapter 18. Um, You can go on the leaflets or the screen behind me. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up from the sea. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They said to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Thanks, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Adam. Uh, I normally come here to our 1045 service at CLG, and I'd love to say hello after the service. Uh, as Cam mentioned, we're taking a brief pause in our Roman series, uh, and we're looking back at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we last looked at Luke way back in April last year. Doesn't that feel like a long time ago, hey? Uh, we're going to pick up, as we said, back in Luke 18. 
Now, to quickly catch you up, Jesus has been teaching in Galilee, and he's teaching about what the kingdom of God looks like. And all along, he's inverting people's expectations about who gets into the kingdom and how they get there. We've had famous stories like the prodigal son, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the rich man. And next week, Luke Wisely will take us through the story of Zacchaeus. But for this week, we're looking at these two uh, almost disconnected moments, one very private, one very public, yet both together playing a crucial role in helping us to see Jesus as God's promised king. The trajectory of our passage today takes us from a place of confusion and misunderstanding about Jesus to a place of clarity and great faith transformation. So we're going to look at this passage through these stages. We've got the misunderstanding of the king, the clarity of the king, and the impact of the king. The misunderstanding, the clarity, and the impact of Jesus as king. Now, you'll note in the uh, leaflet thing, there's an outline that will be helpful for you to follow along. And if you can have the Bible reading in Luke 18 as we go through. Let's jump into it. But first, let me pray. Father, as we come to this text, help us to see it clearly. Prepare our hearts to engage with what you have to say to us. And help me to faithfully handle your word this morning. Amen. Alrighty. Point one, the misunderstanding. Now, there's a TV show called Undercover Boss. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, the premise of the show is quite clever. A CEO of a big company uh, disguises themselves and goes to work on the front lines of their organization with the aim to see firsthand what works and what doesn't. Uh, it's, they get all dressed up in prosthetic noses and wigs and makeup, uh, and off they go to work. Now, um, it's quite interesting to watch, right? So the CEO of McDonald's goes and flips burgers. Or the CEO of the Holiday Inn goes and does the housekeeping. And the disguises are so good that a lot of the time, the people that they're working alongside don't recognize them. So it's quite funny when they're there working and people are complaining about everything that's wrong with the company and how terrible the management is, all right to the face of the CEO. It's a classic case of mistaken identity. They simply don't recognize the person standing right in front of them. And that's a bit what it's like with the disciples in our passage today. Except I should say it's not technically mistaken identity. Jesus isn't in a fake nose and a wig. He's, in fact, he's being very explicit when he talks to them about what is about to happen to him. But its meaning is hidden. Now, we have to understand that the disciples' problem is not that they're in denial that Jesus is a king. In fact, uh, back in chapter 9, they've even said, you are the Messiah. But their problem is that they don't understand how his kingship will play out. There's a misunderstanding of what it means for Jesus to be king. Because for most of the history of God's people, they've been looking forward to this promised king, this great king who will come and reclaim the throne and rule over Israel and make God's people great again. So the disciples assume that this going to Jerusalem will mean this great overthrowing of the Roman power as Jesus takes over the throne. But Jesus completely inverts the assumption. So if you've got your Bibles there, read with me verse 31. Jesus takes the 12 aside and says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. I love Jesus' broad brushstroke here. Everything that is written by the prophets. 
it might seem strange that um, Jesus doesn't quote anything specific here. Usually in the Bible, when the Old Testament is referenced, there's usually a direct quote taken out. But here, Jesus is just saying that literally everything has been pointing to him. All of Israel's history, the law, all the teaching of the scriptures comes to fulfillment in him. Everything that is written. Now, the next important thing to note is something that Jesus almost says in passing. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, the term Son of Man literally just means human. But as we saw in that reading from Daniel 7, in the midst of this judgment scene in the heavenly throne room, where the beasts that represent evil are being defeated, there comes one like a Son of Man. But this is no ordinary human, is it? This is a picture of someone with God-like power and the authority of the King of Heaven. A God-like human who defeats evil. And in our passage, Luke 18, Jesus is saying, that's me. I am that victorious King. So the disciples have this picture in their mind that their King is going to come with this kind of power and authority. It's a picture of victory and triumph. But then Jesus turns it around entirely. Read with me verse 32. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, straight up, you'll notice the vivid language. It's violent, isn't it? Flogged, spat on, killed. This language points us to the figure of a servant in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, who is going to bring salvation to all of God's people by obeying him perfectly. In Isaiah 53.3, regarding this promised servant, this promised king, on the screen it says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah says that the way this king will claim his throne is by taking the punishment for the transgressions of the people, which ultimately leads to his death. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Back in our passage, Luke 18, Jesus doesn't just refer to these prophecies about his death. He says, verse 33, on the third day he will rise again. Now, the Old Testament is full of promises about the resurrection of God's king. It says that this servant king in Isaiah 53 will see the light of life. And through Daniel, Ezekiel, Jonah, the Psalms, just to name a few, they all promise life out of death and point us to the resurrection of Jesus. So the disciples, they have these two competing pictures in their mind. The Son of Man's victory and triumph met with the servants, suffering and death. And they can't reconcile these pictures together. Its meaning is hidden. Because at that point in history, Jesus hadn't been to the cross yet. And it's on the cross that these two pictures are reconciled. It's on the cross that we see the kind of king we have, a victorious, conquering king who suffers and dies in the place of his people. A king who lets himself be crushed for our sake so that we don't have to be. Why does he do this? It's because he loves us. Because he wants us to be part of his kingdom. 
God's kingdom is God's sovereign rule over creation with King Jesus on the throne. And God wants us to be part of that with him. But when we sin, we turn our eyes away from Jesus as king and we elevate other things into that place in our lives. When we're ruled by our drive for money or pleasure or status or or success, none of which are intrinsically bad in their own right, mind you, but when we elevate them to the status of king, then it masks our view. It creates a veil over our eyes and it makes us blind to the true king. But on the cross, Jesus bore on himself the cost of our rejection of his kingship. The death that comes from looking elsewhere for our king was put on him. He died in our place, paid the price for us. He was mocked. We were given glory. He was insulted. We were exalted. He was flogged. We were embraced and brought into God's family. He was killed. We were spared. And when he rose from the dead, he broke the power of sin and defeated death. So now when we come to him, when we turn to him and we say, Jesus, I believe in what you've done for me on the cross. Have mercy on me, forgive me, and be my king. Well, he promises to heal our hearts and he gives us eternal life with him. This is great news, right? But the disciples just don't get it. God's promise to restore his people has finally come true but they're blind to the truth. I love this. Luke emphasizes it three times in verse 34. They did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about, just in case we didn't get the point. They don't want to see Jesus on the cross because it doesn't fit with their picture of their king. And I've got to admit, I get where they're coming from. It's a lot easier to look at Jesus as that victorious conquering king, isn't it? The king who taught and healed and loved everyone. Because looking at Jesus on the cross is confronting. It forces me to come to terms with my own sin, my own failing, and my own need for mercy and forgiveness. But without the cross, there's no hope. What good is a great and victorious king if he just leaves us behind? Or if we're not allowed into his kingdom? On the cross, Jesus made a way for us to come into his kingdom and for him to be our king. And of course, 2,000 years on, we can look at that with great clarity. But the disciples haven't seen that yet. So they totally misunderstand their king. Point two, the clarity. The first section is all about misunderstanding. And so now the second section is all about clarity. Jesus and his gang get to a town called Jericho. And in the midst of the crowd, there at the gate is a blind man begging. He asks, what is happening? And all he's told is that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Verse 38, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now this is a big signpost, okay? A big billboard with flashing lights for us to pay attention and notice something here. Remember how all of Israel's history has been spent looking forward to this promised king. Well, God promised to King David that that king would come from his bloodline and this kingdom would be established forever. And so for centuries, Israel has been looking to David's bloodline for this promised king. 
And so when the blind man calls Jesus the son of David, he is affirming his kingship. He's saying, Jesus, you are the king. You are my king. The blind man simply had faith. He said, you're my king. And Jesus is calling us to have faith and make him our king too. The blind man says, son of David, my king, have mercy on me. But he's, he's, he's crying out to Jesus, but he's not just saying, heal me, heal me, heal me. He's crying, have mercy on me. This man knows that his problem first and foremost is not his lack of vision, but his sin. That's what cuts him off from the king. Not his social class or his misfortune, but his sin. And so, of course, this man wants to have his eyes uh, physically healed and to be able to see. But he knows that he first needs spiritual healing from his sin. For Jesus the king, God himself, to have mercy on him. Now, the Bible says that our default position as people, the default state of our hearts, of my heart, is to be in rebellion against God, to have other things on the throne of our life. We all need mercy from God to forgive us. We all need to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The blind man knows that he needs it. So when the crowds try and push him away, he only shouts more and more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then we have this really cool cinematic moment where everything stops, it all zooms in, the cheering and the woohooing all grinds to a halt and all eyes are on this blind man. Verse 40, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Now, the irony here is almost funny, isn't it? In the first part of our reading, we've got the inner ring of Jesus' followers who are blind to the truth. And in the next breath, we've got a blind man who sees nothing of the world, yet who sees Jesus with such clarity that he drops everything and runs to him. So when Jesus comes and he says, uh, verse 41, Lord, I want to see... Jesus says, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. He opens the eyes of the blind man as a powerful symbol of what everyone around him needs to do as well. Open their spiritually blind eyes and see Jesus clearly. This is the great hope of this passage. If we have faith, if we make Jesus our king, then our hearts are healed and we see clearly. You know how if you get into your car on a cold morning and the windscreen's all frosted over? You know, you're sitting there and there's just this sheet of fog in front of you. And you're sitting there waiting for that little blower thing to work. Waiting, waiting. And you're sitting there and slowly but surely a little sort of circle appears at the bottom of the windscreen. Waiting, waiting, waiting. But it takes forever for that bit to get any bigger, doesn't it? So you're waiting. And we've all had the thought. You're sitting there. You're probably late. You look down at that little hole and you think... I reckon that's enough, and off we go. We've all driven off with the windows half fogged up, haven't we? Or at least thought about it, be honest. Uh, During the week, I work as a paramedic, and we go to these little bingles, these little car crashes all the time. Uh, And one time, we go to this low-speed T-bone in a back street. Everyone was okay, don't worry, it was all a bit of nothing. But this guy had turned out of the street, literally into the path of an oncoming car. 
When we got there, his driver's window was completely fogged over. Could not see out. I drew a little smiley face in it. And I said, mate, why were you driving like this? And he looked up at me and he said, honestly, I know the road. There's never any traffic. (laughs) What? But he couldn't see. And so when something unexpected happened, his lack of vision cost him. Does life sometimes feel like that? I know it does for me. That despite our best intentions to get it right, no matter how well we think we know where we're going, we feel like we're looking through a fog. We feel like there's a veil over our eyes that we can't see clearly, and life doesn't make sense. The Bible actually acknowledges this feeling. It says that life without God is like having a veil over our eyes. We think we know what's going on, but our vision is constricted. But when we have faith in God, when we turn to Christ, that veil is taken away. Our blind eyes are given sight. The windscreen is cleared and we see. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, on the screen it says that before we trust in Jesus, our minds were made dull for the veil remains. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. In verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that's when they repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. God calls us to have faith in him. And through faith, our veil, our blindness to the truth about Jesus is taken away and we see clearly. Back in the story, this healing floods the crowd with excitement. Luke 18, 43. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Isn't this a great ending to the story? When this blind man encounters Jesus and has his life transformed, he's filled with joy and praises God. And this witness directs the whole crowd around him to do the same. This blind man sees his king so clearly and with such clarity. Let's be like the blind man. Finally, point three, the impact of the king. So we've come from a place of misunderstanding and confusion about Jesus as king to a place of clarity. From those two disconnected ideas about the son of man and the victorious conquering king and the servant suffering and death, we've seen how they come together on the cross. When the blind man looks at Jesus, he says, you are the king, not a king, not one of my many kings. When he looks at Jesus, he sees his one and only king. But for us, this is hard, isn't it? It's tempting to look at Jesus and want to see what we want to see, to try and fit Jesus into the mold that suits us to pick and choose from his teaching or to twist his words to suit what we want to hear. Maybe you think of Jesus as more of a, um, as a great moral teacher or as an example of how our charity or care for the poor should look. It's tempting to have Jesus as more of a royal advisor than as the king over our life, isn't it? But Jesus makes a big claim. He says that he is the true king the one that we were designed to have on the throne of our hearts. 
the one through whom the veil, the darkness, the fog of this world is taken away, the one through whom we see clearly. Now, no matter what your faith background is, whether you've been following Jesus for 80 years or you've never set foot in a church before until today, firstly, welcome. We have to answer and grapple with this question. Where am I looking for my king? Where am I looking for my king? I've been really challenged as I've been preparing this message to answer this question in my own life. You know, I come to church every week, I sing the songs, I do kids ministry, but is all that just something nice on the side? Something I do to fill my time on a Sunday morning or something that I do to make me feel like a good person? Or is Jesus truly on the throne of my heart? Is my life actually transformed by his grace and his mercy? Is he really my king? The test is to ask, what drives me? Where do I look to for my validation? Or what makes me the th- who I am? Whatever the answer, that is our king. And we can look anywhere for these kings. To our career, to our beauty, to our social circle, to our family. These things that we elevate to the status of king in our life blind us from the true king. Jesus says we all need forgiveness. We all need to turn from our sin and fix our eyes on him as our king. We all need need to come to him like the blind man and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We all have a king. We all have something that drives us. The question is, where are you looking for yours? Now, if you're new at church or just checking out who Jesus is, uh, let me add my welcome to Cam's. We love that you're here. Uh, We run uh, something called the Life Course, and it's a great chance to explore the great questions of faith and life and find out what Jesus is all about. We'll have some dates starting soon, but if you're interested in coming along, it's four nights over good food and drink in a very low-stress environment. Uh, You can talk to Cam or myself afterwards or just write life on the contact card and pop it in the box at the back. Now, as a church of people who follow Jesus, how do we ensure that we keep looking to Jesus as our king, to keep seeing him clearly? It all starts with his word. This is where we see Jesus clearly. I'd encourage you to read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Or if you've only really read the New Testament before, Why not read some of the old? Why not commit to reading through Isaiah this year? Because as Jesus said, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. We believe that the whole Bible is one big story that points to Jesus. So if we want to see him clearly as our king, this is where we start. And as a quick plug, community groups are starting in a couple of weeks. And I think that these are some of the best ways that we can encourage each other week in, week out to keep seeing Jesus clearly. As we close, I want to encourage us as a church to have this vision of Jesus. To be followers of Jesus who come to him and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Not trying to fit him into the mold that we want to suit us but to see him clearly as he claims to be, the son of God, the promised king. Every decision we make, we make with our eyes on Jesus. Everything that we say, 
we say with our eyes on Jesus. Where are you looking for your king? I want to be like the blind man who looks to Jesus as his king and praises God. Let me close with these words from this old Irish hymn. Be thou my vision, O king of my heart. Nought be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Let me pray. King Jesus, we pray that we would see you clearly. We pray that you would help us to set aside the distractions and the false kings in our life, and that we would be people who set our eyes on you. As we go from here today, may our vision of you as king permeate through all of our life. Through our actions and decisions, may other people know that you are the king over our lives. Amen.